Well, good morning. And our children saw the screen and they are dismissed for their lesson. It's good to see each of you this morning. And I know that we are now in the busy season of Christmas parties and white elephant gifts and work parties. And we can get worn out while trying to focus on the right things. And that's what sort of the Advent atmosphere is supposed to do. And so far we have three candles lit. And the first one is hope, which closely connected to that is promise and expectancy. And then you have peace. And this morning's candle signifies love. And that's going to be our focus this morning. Uh, We think we understand love, but when we actually look at God's word and sort of work through what God's love is, uh, I I hope in some way it startles you again to hear about God's love. I'm just going to start not with a gripping illustration, but with a thesis statement. Isn't that attractive? Right? A proposition. Here's the big idea. The incarnation, right? We've defined that, I think, the last two weeks. The incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity. Of course, involved in that, the purpose of the incarnation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's connected to the incarnation. That he came to die. That's all connected with the incarnation. So the incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity in that God sent his son to identify with them and die for their sin. And the eternal son willingly came to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Romans 5, 8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do we know of this kind of love? And what do we show others of this kind of love? Because it's not just this abstract doctrine that we need to grasp, but there's actually an application to our own lives from the love that God has shown us that we are then to reflect that love to other people. Open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 4. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity. Can we support that statement? Right, that intriguing and gripping thesis statement. Can we support that? Let me, let me, while you're turning to 1 John 4, let me read to you what Jesus said in John chapter 15. You're turning to 1 John 4. Jesus said, he's going to use the word that we've entered into our thesis statement. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Then he looked to his disciples and he says this, you are my friends. And he follows that up. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Well, in John 13, as was already read this morning, he says, I give to you a new commandment. And that commandment is to what? To love one another as I have loved you. Our love is often, if you think about it, our love is often temperamental, finicky, and moody. We put hurdles and conditions in the way and we revoke it quickly when the person we profess to love disappoints or fails us. Right? We're familiar with that kind of love, aren't we? We're familiar with, 
being affirmed in one moment and avoided in the next moment. What do we know of the kind of love that God shows? Because here's how we often love. We love those who love us. Isn't that true? And, And we do that naturally. We love if we are loved in return. That's natural. We love if people don't disappoint us naturally. We love if people resemble us. Same or greater social status, same interests, same tastes, same values. And we do this naturally. We love people if they agree with us naturally. We love if we can get something out of the relationship Either affirmation or material benefit or status or comfort or pleasure or security. Naturally. And folks, what I just described is how the world loves. That's exactly how the world loves. And Jesus knew this and that's why he said, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He says this in Luke, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He says this again, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See, Jesus actually exposed the nature of our love, sometimes even as Jesus followers. That's exactly how we love. That's exactly how we respond. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You reject me, I'm going to avoid you. But what do we know of the love of God? Because because this is the problem. There are, I believe, some people here this morning who have that's all the kind of love they've been exposed to, even from a father or a parent. It is this highly conditional love, this this sort of performance based love. And we equate that with God's love. And so we're not quite sure on what ground we stand with our creator. Do you know of this kind of love? A love that keeps loving even when we're not handsome or pretty. A love that is sustained even when we're disappointing and ugly. A love that doesn't depend on status. A love that is maintained without purchasing it or manipulating it. A love without jumping through hurdles. What do we know of that kind of love? And what do we show to one another and the world of that kind of love? Because Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. By what? By that kind of love, right? The kind of love that Jesus shows. The kind of love when Jesus walks up to the woman caught in adultery, he says... Go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. For by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That really is the only acid test that Jesus provides. So somebody could be over here and say, I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in justification by faith alone. And those are all true statements and they must be believed. But Jesus doesn't hold those as the acid test, does he? 
The way that you will really know whether somebody is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ or not is not their statement of faith, though that's important. It's whether they love like Jesus loves. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity. So let's look at this. Let's look at God's love. Look at 1 John 4, 8. God's love. Twice the Apostle John says, God is love. Look at 1 John 4, 8 and identify that statement. Then go down to verse 16. He's going to repeat it. This is perhaps the most wonderful yet most misunderstood and distorted statement in the Bible. Here's why. God, when John says God is love, it is not an isolated truth. It's not a truth that's contained in a vacuum. It's not an abstract truth that stands alone. So what we're going to say is, yes, God is love, but that's not all that God is. That love is framed up and defined or described a certain way. So, God is love, but he's also self-existent. What does that mean? He needed nothing, not even a cause, to exist. And he needs nothing or no one to keep existing. But we need him. God is love, but he's also eternal. He has no beginning and no end. God is love, but he's also infinite. He's limitless and endless. He cannot be measured God is love, but he's also holy. He's unique and he is set apart. A.W. Tozer wrote, From God's other known attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence. The love of God. See, there are two other things that... The scriptures explicitly say God is with the same formula. There's only three things. It's God is love. Do you know the other two? God is with the same formula. God is with the, the same sort of grammatical construction. God is light. And in John 4:24, God is spirit. It doesn't mean these, these are all that God is, but the way the, the way the sentence is structured with that statement, it makes these three, three things just sort of pop off the page. God is spirit, eternal spirit contrasted with sort of temporal flesh. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. God is love. And we're going to start to begin to explain what God's love is. God eternally gives of himself for the good of others. He eternally gives of himself for the good of other people. J.I. Packer, commenting on these three particular attributes, wrote, quote, So the love of the God who is spirit is no fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is. Nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. It is rather a determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction. An attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. Nothing can separate from it those whom it has once embraced. 
But we are told the God who is spirit is also light. Light means holiness and purity as measured by God's law. Darkness means moral perversity and unrighteousness as measured by the same law. So the God who is love is first and foremost light. And sentimental ideas of his love as an indulgent, benevolent softness divorced from moral standards and concerns must therefore be ruled out from the start. God's love is holy love. He ends with this sentence. The God whom Jesus made known is not a God who is indifferent to moral distinctions, but a God who loves righteousness and hates iniquity. So first of all, God's love is not an isolated truth. Second, God's love is an expression of his goodness. What does love do? Love wills the good of others. What's the opposite of that? Willing the harm of others, right? That's why John can say there is no fear in what? Love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let me ask you, have you ever punished someone for not meeting your expectations? Someone you profess to love, maybe a husband or a wife or a child. And I'm not talking about appropriate nurturing and discipline. I'm I'm talking about self-infatuated responses of, you're going to pay for that. Do you know God is not like that? God doesn't have that motive in him. Yes, he's just. Wickedness and evil will be judged and condemned. But love wills the good of people. God's love is an expression of his goodness. What is fear? You sort of like look at the emotion of fear. What is fear? Fear is a vexing emotion that springs from the thought that we may be harmed or made to suffer. So it is appropriate in in one way to fear God, right? Don't fear man, which can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and soul and cast it into hell forever. So there's an appropriate vexing emotion that even springs from an understanding of who God is. That fear will persist and may even increase while we are subject to a cruel person. I hope no one in here has ever been bullied But a child who is bullied fears the next day of school. Why? Because there's a bully there who intends the harm and not the goodwill of that child. And that entire day of so-called education and experience is colored by fear. Fear will persist and fear will be spawned when we are under the will of someone who does not care about our well-being. But when does when is fear then vanquished? When we come under the care of someone who wills our safety and who has the power to keep it. The moment we come under the protection of one who is not who not only desires our good, but has the strength to ensure it. Fear is cast out. Let me keep reading what John says. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. Have you experienced that kind of love from God? A perfect love, a perfect love that is an extension of his goodness, that wills the protection and the safety and the goodwill of the object loved. 
Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Theologian Louis Burkhoff explained God's goodness as that perfection in God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. So let me repeat this. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to us. In that, he sent his son to die for our sin. And the son, the eternal son, willingly took on flesh to die in our place. So the love of God, his outgoing goodness and kindness is not only undeserved, but it's contrary to what is deserved. So let me ask you, what do you deserve? If in Genesis 3, a curse falls upon all humanity and that curse is death, what do you deserve? So then what is God's love? It's, It's not just not what you deserve. It's contrary to what you deserve. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. You deserve eternal separation. But God's goodness and his loving kindness, his love comes in and he what? He acts contrary to what you deserve. Why? Because we are responsible creatures. We choose to break God's law. Our nature is corrupt in God's sight. We merit condemnation and final separation. And then what does God do? Even while we were yet like that, Romans 5, 8, what does he do? He shows his love. By what action? By sending his son to die in your place and for your sin. Here's what is so amazing about God's love. See, love among humans is awakened by something in the person being loved. I mean, we could just take, you know, sort of the most basic of relationships, right? Young boy sees beautiful young girl. Wow. Something was awakened in him. Typically the attractiveness or maybe over a longer period of time where there's a lot of of common likes and dislikes and humor shared. And all of a sudden these two friends become closer and something is awakened with inside of them. Do you know that there was nothing in you that awakened anything in God? It's not like he passed by you once and said, hmm, pretty religious. Wow, nice tie. Woo, every Sunday they're there? Right, there's, I'm being funny, I'm taking things that are important, but God never passed by and something within you awakened in him a reason to love you or a reason to love me. This is why we call God's love free, unevoked, and uncaused. And here's the beauty of that. Because it's free and unevoked and uncaused, you can't mess it up. There's nothing that all of a sudden you fail to do that compromises God's love for you. Did you hear that? You can't mess it up. Yes, you can displease him as a heavenly father. I get that. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You cannot mess up his love. Right? Jesus even said, even a good father knows how to give good gifts. If his son or daughter asks for a loaf of bread, a good father is not going to give him a stone. Right? So even, even in, the, in the world of human fathers, we get this. If my children 
disappoint me and mess up. That, that may alter my happiness, but it does not alter my love. Same with God. God's love is unaltered because initially it was unevoked and unawakened by anything that you did. So let me, let's put it in a question. Let me put in a question. I want, I want our young children to answer this as well. Not out loud. So where are my like Awana kids, right? With all that energy on Wednesday. There they are, right? Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Answer it silently, just like your parents. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? Or fill in the blank. God love. I, I didn't like fill in the blank on tests because you had to you had to know the answer, right? A B C D. I can circle one of those, but fill in the blank. It's obvious that I didn't study. So here we go. God loves me because. Here's the answer. God loves me because God loves me. God has chosen to love me by nothing I have done and nothing I have caused and nothing I have evoked and nothing I have awakened within him. God loves me because God loves me. You can't stop that kind of love. The Apostle Paul in writing to Titus says this, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What an accurate description of who we are. Nothing in that awakens love. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what? Mercy. Undeserved. Contrary to what you do deserve, it is undeserved. God's mercy, his mercy, that's why God loves you. So God's love is not an isolated truth. God's love is an expression of his goodness. And third, God loves, God's love for sinners involves his identifying with their condition. Let's go back to the beginning. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity in that God sent his son to identify with them and die for their sin. And the eternal son willingly came as a human. That's his identity with you and me to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What would you say of a father who saw his child run out into the parking lot, standing there, a car comes zipping around the corner, two-year-old runs out in front of the car and the father goes, huh, <laughs> huh, hmm. Is that a loving father? Why? He failed to identify with the danger his child was in. What would you say of a husband whose wife was being harmed and mistreated in his presence and he remained aloof and passive? He's not a loving husband. Because the husband failed to identify with the situation of his wife. And identifying with that situation from true love demands action. It demands the father stop whatever he's doing and run down and scoop up his little boy in his hands. It demands the husband intervene and take whatever strikes or hits that are being given to his wife. You understand that? 
Right? We relate with that. The love of God is not a passive concept to be understood. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians, it surpasses knowledge. It's more than knowledge. It's more than a concept to be understood. In a very real sense, it is true as a father that I am only at ease when those closest to me are safe and happy. When they hurt, I hurt. When they laugh, there's something within me that's pleased. No wonder Paul speaks of God's love as great. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now listen to how he relates. Listen to the action. This great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He identified with our danger. He identified with our situation. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He initiated the rescue. He moved towards us. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Finally, the thing I want us to understand this morning about God's love is that God's love was, an express, was expressed by the gift of His Son. Right? God's love is not an isolated truth. It's not all that He is, but it is who He is. God's love is an expression of His goodness, this benevolence, this benefaction. God's love for sinners involves His identifying with their condition. And in identifying with their condition, fourthly, God's love was expressed by the gift of His Son. Often the measure of someone's love is how much it gives. And I'm, I'm not just talking flowers and candies. and Though that's it's an extension of that. The measure of somebody's love is by how much it gives. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity in that God sent His Son. Now what would motivate that? Turn back to John chapter 3. You say, oh, I know verse 16. Turn back to John chapter 3. <laughs> We're going to look at more than just verse 16. John three sixteen. For God, so what? So loved the world that he What? He gave God's love was expressed by the gift of his son for God. So loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? That whoever. Okay. so if there's nothing in us that evokes or awakens God's love for us and we are dead in trespasses and sins, but God took the initiative to rescue us. Then whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Remember, we we talked about this two weeks ago. We were already condemned. We were condemned with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And we are condemned if we don't believe. Keep reading in verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's an extension of his goodness. He, his good will not to inflict harm, but to save. 
But whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's love was expressed by the gift of His Son. No wonder Paul uses the gift that God gave to guarantee every other good gift. Right? So, I mean, this is just one of those arguments that if they did that, well, there's nothing else they're not going to do, right? Listen to how Paul says it. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This is the greatest gift, the greatest expression of God's love. That was Romans 8.32. No wonder after John stated in 1 John 4 that God is love, he moves to the proof of that love. And you're not going to be surprised. Guess what he says? He says God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest. It's revealed. It's shown. How? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The appeasement of God's wrath. The sin sacrifice so that God's wrath is removed and His love is bestowed. This is why Jesus prays to His Father in John 17. So that the world, this is Jesus on earth, praying to the Father, so that the world may know that you sent me, and listen to this, and loved. See, I expect him to say me. And he doesn't. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The eternal Father Loves us with the same kind of love he has for his son. Unevoked, unawakened, free, undeserved. For us, talking as humans, and yet he'll still love us as much as he loves the perfect, sinless, eternal son. So what about you? Have you experienced this kind of love? Because if you actually think that somehow God loves you more for what you do, you don't understand God's love. If you think that somehow you're able to get his favor more by what you do, you don't understand God's love. That's human love. That's how the world loves. Have you experienced the love of God that surpasses knowledge? The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to humanity and he offers salvation by his grace as a gift that is to be received by faith. That's Romans 3.24 and 3.25. Let me read to you one more passage out of Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Why would Christ do that? Keep reading. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? Even that's rare. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Okay, since sacrificial love is so rare, even for a good person, why did Jesus die for people who aren't good at all? Why? Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us. 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So John says this in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Is that the love that you experience? I mean, is your, is your hope that you're going to get to heaven based upon a prayer you prayed? Or a meeting you attended? Or the assurance that somebody else who knows you says, no, I'm pretty sure you're born again. And you're good, you're moral, you're, you're a better person than me. Or is it based upon the unmerited grace of God through the gift of His Son to be received by faith? Have you received that? God so loved the world that whosoever believes will not perish. Have you done that? Have you bowed in belief to Him? Yes, God. In conclusion, let me just talk about a second application to this. You have the love of God sort of explained. But if you come back to John chapter 13, there's also supposed to be the love of God reflected. How is that reflected? I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. See, in a profound sense, we have only been given two commandments to obey. That makes it really simple, doesn't it? I can, I can remember two. Love God and love others. Jesus said, every law hangs on these two. Every, so that means every disobedience is in disobedience to one or the other or both. In that situation, you either fail to love God or you fail to love others. And if you fail to love others, you fail to love God. Right? So, two commands. And this is what I don't want to do. I don't want us to recognize the poverty of our love for God and others and simply increase the guilt and our tendency to give up. But I want us to, to fixate again on the right thing rather than move away through despondency and guilt, actually, actually look at the right thing. So I've, I've had you turn to Romans 5, 5, and this is, the, this is the idea around this. Only love can stimulate love. When you forget that God loves you this way, you will fail to love others this way. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And some of us are exhausted and weary and about to give up because we are loving out of the source of our own strength. And when you do that, you will inevitably love as the world loves. And you will be exhausted. But to love out of the source of God's love being poured into our heart. Look at Romans 5.5. 5. For the genuine believer, Romans 5.5 5 is true. I'm going to pick up in the middle of the verse. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Some translations use the word flooded. God's love floods into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is his normal work. This is what the Holy Spirit does who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And by the Holy Spirit's ministry, the love of God is poured into large quantity into our hearts. Deep, not, not temporal and shallow, but deep 
in a sense, drowning, overwhelming. What's interesting about the word poured there is the tense of the verb means that it's a settled state and a completed action. For the believer, it's done. You have been, in a sense, immersed, overwhelmed, flooded by the love of God in your own heart. So, if you just follow the logic, my love for my enemies, I can't do that naturally. My love for you, if you disappoint or slander me, how can I keep loving you? Well, if it's out of the, out of the source of my own strength, I'm going to fail. I'm going to love as the world loves. But if it is an overflow of the flooding of God's love in my own heart by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the love will be supernatural and it will, it will feel like you're in the very presence of God. This action is completed by the Holy Spirit. So, come back to what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. It's not fickle, it's not emotional, it's not moody. It is constant, unevoked, unawakened, because it's God's kind of love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So, last, last question. Why don't some genuine believers love like this? Maybe you're asking that of your own heart this morning. Why don't I love like this? Why do I get mechanical? Why do I get, you know, why, why is my love so conditional? Why am I like that? I think Peter says something remarkable to this. He's saying, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to add to your virtue this. He comes to the end of his list and he says, make every effort to supplement brotherly affection with love. That's how he ends. But then listen to what he says about it. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, whoever lacks brotherly affection, Whoever whoever lacks this kind of love is so nearsighted that he is blind. And you know what causes that blindness? Peter says, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. You forgot about God's love for you. You forgot that even when you were a sinner, he loved you and he forgave you. And you forgot to love the way he loves. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to you. One passage and a prayer. Writer of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, right, we're human, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became a human. He was born as a baby. He was dependent upon a young mother. He grew up as a young man. Why? That through death, that was the whole purpose of his birth, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver. See, that's love. Love is an action. It identifies with the plight of the thing loved or the person loved. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember, perfect love casts out what? Fear and this perfect love is an action and he initiates and he moves in to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus was born as a human being. 
He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's us. In every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The incarnation is the greatest expression of God's love to you in that God sent his son to identify with you and die for your sin. And the eternal son willingly came to redeem you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you.